out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Okay there. Thank you, Jim. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. I'm just being trucking through some archives of different people I've interviewed over the last few years. And this is one that I unearthed, and I thought, must archive this one. This is Barry Miles, author of numerous books, and was a bit of a mover and shaker on the 1960s London underground and culture um, counterculture, and was the co-owner of the Indica Gallery, and also helped start the independent newspaper International Times. He was there at the 14-hour Technicolor Dream. It is worth archiving this. Um, actually, this interview came out when he just did a book, I do believe, on the 70s. Yes, it was, he says, looking down at his notes, the 70s. In the 70s, Adventures in the Counterculture, it was on Serpent's Tail, 2011. My God, this is a very old interview. Anyway, this is me, this is Barry. Enjoy. I did. Now, the reason for sort of um, the interview is because you've just got a book out called In the 70s, The Adventures in the Counterculture. But before that, your your main thing has been the 60s, hasn't it? So for the, for the listeners who have not come across you before, could you just give us a sort of an idea of where you've come from and, and your background? Well, yes. I mean, it, it is actually a, a continuation of a book I originally did called In the 60s. And... Um, in the 60s, I, I was involved in the sort of underground countercultural scene. I was, um, first of all, uh, involved with the Albert Hall Poetry Reading of 1965. Uh, Alan Ginsberg, the poet, was, was staying with me at the time. And so I was very closely involved with all of that, including the original idea. And um, after that, uh, I, a friend of mine called John Hopkins and myself had the idea of starting an underground newspaper in Britain. And uh, we started something called International Times, uh, with, with, of course, the help of an enormous lot of other people. Um, and International Times, or IT, as it was known, carried on right through till about 1974, in fact. Um, the first issue came out in October 66. Um, the launch party for that was uh, the first time that the Roundhouse was ever used for as a music venue, or any kind of venue. Um, before that, it was a a gin storage warehouse <laughs> that Gilby's Gin had. And, is this and, um, and there we had the, the Pink Floyd and the Soft Machine and bands like that played, you know, the first time ever to big groups. And this was the 14-hour the Technicolor Dream, wasn't it? No, that was a bit later. That, that came about, uh, about eight, um, eight months later. Oh, right. So what was the launch party then? It was, uh, it was just the first... It was a big gathering. It was the first time, really, there was any kind of underground scene in London. Um, it was just to launch the International Times, and we... I mean, it was a death trap, really, to be quite honest. I mean, there's only the one very narrow staircase leading in. I mean, had there been a fire, I mean, there were great big doors in the roundhouse leading out into the, the goods yards of the British Rail. But, um, it would have been I mean, it was, it was a nightmare, really. I mean, uh, <laughs> there was only two toilets for, for uh, about 3,000 people. And, um, and of course, it had a very, very poor electricity supply. And uh, the Pink Floyd, uh, at the height of their... Um, you know, their, their big hit, as it well, they didn't have any records yet, but I mean, their, their biggest number, they blew all the power out, so it was quite dramatic. <laughs> and, then, and, and then after that, I, um, I, or rather, just before that, I'd started a, a bookshop and art gallery uh, called Indica, which um, became famous, really, because that was where John Lennon met Yoko Ono, because we gave her her first show in Europe. Right, and that's what was, so that was when John was there and he saw the apple? That's right, that's oh, right. Okay. Yeah, and he climbed down, there was... There was um, 
what really made him like her was uh, there was a, a, a stepladder in the middle of the, the room and you had to climb up. And on the ceiling, there was a, a sort of circular um, canvas with some writing on it, but very, very small. And hanging from it was a, a magnifying glass and you had to uh, peer at it in order to read it. You know. And he thought it would be something rude, you know, and um, of course, but it really wasn't. It said yes, I think. Oh, really? <laughs> so he thought that was very positive. And so basically, the the Indica Bookshop that was responsible for bringing in the kind of beat generation to to the English culture, I guess. Uh, to yes, to popularising it certainly. I mean, there, there obviously had been other events, um, you know, earlier on. I mean, Ginsberg and Corso, for instance, came to Britain in 1958, first of all. But um, it's true. I mean, there hadn't been much contact at all with any of the beats until '65, really. And when was the poetry one at the Royal Albert Hall? Was that in '65? That was '65. Yeah, the right. summer of '65. And so then... it's all a bit before the sort of hippies and everything. I mean, in, in, in many ways, it's seen as the sort of you know, the, the the crucial sort of key event which created that scene. Because it was the first time, really, that uh, a lot of people had, had realised that there was a sort of constituency of of students and writers and artists and dress designers and, you know, um, well, all, all right across the board, really. You know, it was a, because everyone had their own little scene, you know, the uh, the theatrical people hung around the royal court and, uh, you know, the, the the King's Road was filled with all the dress designers and so on. And there was no real contact between them. Whereas this was the first time everyone seemed to have come together in, uh, you know, with, with the subject of mutual interest, which is why Hoppy and I thought, well, what these people really need is a newspaper, or what we really need is a newspaper. And that was the International Times? That and started. that was International Times, yeah. And then shortly after that, you know, Oz started and Friends and a few other papers, but uh, ours was out first. So how did you see, you know, like you had the sort of the beatniks and then the sort of the merging of the hippies, so you were there at the time, how did that sort of develop? Well, I mean, it's a sort of false idea to, to sort of label these things in decades, you know, the 60s and then the 70s. I mean, it, really, the, the the scene I'm talking about sort of began in about 1964, I suppose, which was the first time people started to take LSD and uh, and there was a big interest in poetry and a lot of Americans started to come to Britain, uh, l- largely attracted by the Beatles, actually. And then that sort of carried right on through and the 70s were really, the, the 60s only more so. I mean, the hair in the 70s was longer, you know, the, the clothes more outrageous, the drugs, far more people were taking drugs. The sex was, was even more bizarre, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right through till it got into you know, kind of a strange situation where the punks sort of put a full stop to it, really. But even the punks, you know, much of the philosophy of the punks was, was still uh, rebellious and anti-establishment, and um, many of them really were just hippies with short hair, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you know, somebody like Joe Strummer, for instance, um, cast the I Ching in order to decide whether to join the clash or not. I mean, you can't get more hippie than that, you know. And um, that was very much his background as well, of course. So going just slightly back to the 60s and, and the sort of like... I know you just said you can't cast in particular decades, but obviously after Woodstock and Altamont, there must have been a feeling that things had gone wrong by then. Or did you did you feel like it was just continuing? I thought it was more... I mean, well, you do feel it's a continuing. I mean, you know, just because the date changes doesn't really change people much. So certainly, you know, the latter part of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, it just runs straight on, you know. Um, I think... At the end of the sixties, the people were very tired. You know, they, they, it was just too, so many years of not enough sleep, and taking too many drugs, and you know, just running around too much. And certainly, bands like the Beatles, you know, um, you know, that was partly their, the reason for their collapse. You know, they sort of run their full course, 
and and you had the similar kind of exhaustion, you know, right across the scene in many ways, and which is why new people like Bowie came up. But you know, I mean, somebody like David Bowie had his beginnings at the Arts Lab, you know, and he was a mime artist and all the rest of it. I mean, he was very much out of a, a '60s hippie background. Oh yeah, I mean, he was at the first ever Glastonbury with an acoustic guitar and long hair. That's so, it. Yeah. So it, yeah. It, it it took him a little bit of time to sort of get into that sort of more Andy Warhol. I suppose, glam and punk, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, that was the next stage, you know, that that, that whole group of people, you know, um, brought forward. I mean, Bowie was really big in America. I mean, he he, he sort of led uh, a lot of things forward. Somebody like, you know, Warhol, I absolutely adored him, yeah. Yeah. So how did you feel? Because obviously yours, you had your finger on the on the cultural zeitgeist during the 60s, and you were there sort of... Ah, yes, yes. And then the 70s came along, and did you did you... As a sort of on a personal level, did you find it difficult to sort of keep the enthusiasm going, you know, while there was a younger generation came along and there was like obviously the L.A. sort of soft pop cocaine scene? Did, did you feel that it was difficult sometimes to fit into the new scene that was developing? Not really, because um, I sort of carried on sort of following what, what my contemporaries were doing in many ways. I mean, uh, I mean... Although my book is very much a personal memoir, it definitely follows the sort of trajectory that, uh, you know, this particular generation were doing. I mean, by the end of the 60s and the early 70s, people were moving off to living communes in North Wales and Cornwall and places. And I did the same, except I did mine in, in upstate New York um, and then went to live in a hippie commune in Berkeley with Alan Ginsberg and uh, my girlfriend we had a floor there. And... You know, so so all the things that were happening, both in, you know, right across the board, really, for for that generation, seemed to happen to me as well. So I didn't find any real conflict there. I mean, it was only really, I suppose, when the punks started to come out with this anti-hippie thing, which later on, I mean, a number of them have told me, you know, like Mick Jones from the Clash, you know, that that's, uh, that was just something that Malcolm McLaren had told them all to do, you know, that uh, uh, <laughs> because Malcolm and and uh, and Bernie, the managers of the of the Clash and the Sex Pistols, were both very anti-hippie. That that seemed to become the uh, you know the political position they all took. But in fact, most of them grew up you know with with that whole background. And 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 you know, as Mick Jones once told me, he said, you know, of course we read the International Times and all this and everything. That was our whole thing. But we were just you know we had to say we hated hippies because that was what was going on at the time. But now, you know, they've recounted all of that. Oh, yeah, I mean, so, they, really, they probably admit that they like, you know, the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac as well. Oh, very much. Well, it was certainly the Clash, I mean, you know. And did you, <laughs> and did you, and did you go and experience any of the sort of the LSD trips that was, was taking place in America at I the time? I went up to visit uh, Tim Leary and in, in, Woods, in um, Millbrook, Millbrook in upstate New York. And I also saw him over in... Um, in Berkeley at the end of the 60s. So, yeah, I was I was a bit involved with that scene, but I was never really that keen on um, on, on it, really. To me... Um, you didn't go and see Ken Kesey at all? And... No, I never did. I never did. I mean, I thought his his thing was, was kind of brutal, really. I mean, the, the spiking everybody of acid, and, you know, it, it was all... Um, it, it may have been all very democratic, you know, the idea that everybody should be able to have all this stuff, as opposed to... Uh, you know, the sort of leery um, East Coast sort of much more um, academic approach, I suppose, or, or a spiritual approach where people had to take it in special conditions and all the rest of it. Uh, whereas, whereas, you know, Keezy, it was just a, some kind of blast, you know. Hmm. Uh, and the Merry Pranksters, again, you know, they, they would just have these huge dances where all the, uh, you know, the, the orange juice was spiked. And so you'd have thousands of people on trips, you know, and a lot of them on very bad trips. And I just didn't like the sound of it. You, know? you must have seen a lot of damaged people during that time, then, if if that um, many. Well, I don't know. See, I live, I live very close to Soho. There's a lot more people 
you know, who are messed up on alcohol and uh, than I ever saw on, on acid. It's true. I mean, it can be dangerous. There's no question about that. I mean, uh, there, were, you, there were some acid actual casualties. But you must have seen people like Sid Barrett go from being sort of quite creative and quite together to being a complete disaster. Yeah, I don't know whether that was acid, though. I think, I mean, he had a, you know, tendency towards schizophrenia anyway. And in fact, recent um, studies have shown that uh, stroboscopic light actually uh, affects uh, uh, insipid schizophrenia and can bring about episodes and uh, it's quite likely that it was his own light show that was, was causing a lot of the problems which none, nobody realized it because I mean, it was so strange you know he'd be perfectly okay well well spaced out maybe a bit high but you know and, and you'd be talking to him and then he'd go on stage and you know within about a quarter of an hour he'd be like you know drooling and uh, you know t- detuning his guitar strings and stuff and uh, it, it was just astonishing you know the change that would come over him mm. um so, uh, I don't know. I mean, that, that's not something that's been fully investigated yet, but there's been a number of, as it were, learned papers about it. Yes. Well, Barry, well, thanks for talking to me. I think we've got enough there. And, you know, it's really a pleasure, because, you know, I've, I've got various books of yours, like The Hippies One and the one on this sort of... Well, I've, I've really enjoyed all your 60s books, actually. So oh, great. It's, it's, it's been great talking to you, and thank you ever so much for, for the time. Well, my pleasure. My okay, pleasure. Then.